Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts tonight. I'm Kayla, another one of your hosts tonight. And I'm Sam. We're all excited to be joining you virtually tonight. Hi, everyone. I'm Karen. And I'm Alishba. Thank you for joining us tonight on the eighth episode of our fifth season entitled Idle Hands. And I'm Francesca. In this episode, two authors put their new hobby of stealing goods to the test and maybe even managed to pick up a lesson or two along the way. Now, let's get into the first story of the night. This story is by a new author to the podcast, Musabaka. Musabaka is a senior at John Jay. After several semesters spent feeling absolutely lost, Musabaka created her ideal major, Imperial History and Postcolonial Studies, through the CUNY BA program. She is also a committed member of the Muslim Students Association at John Jay. Musabaka discovered her love of creative writing in her final semester at John Jay. Though she doesn't know what's next after graduation, she hopes to continue creative writing in some capacity, whether that's in school, professionally, or just for herself. Outside of stealing moments to read fiction, she could be found planting seeds, petting her cats, or appreciating a particularly majestic tree. Let's take a listen to this piece by Musabaka, entitled, Confessions of a Recovering Book Addict. I swung my legs back and forth under the wooden hallway bench in front of my second grade classroom. Nabiha, my second grade teacher, Maisie began, calling me by my last name like I'd requested at the beginning of the year. Where did you get this book? It was a Beverly Cleary book, the one about a mouse who had a motorcycle. I pulled at the pink one-piece hijab on my head. One of my dirty white shoelaces was coming loose. We'd never had a television at my house. My parents were convinced that TV would ruin our brains, our education, and eventually our lives. They treated excessive entertainment as if it was haram or forbidden. Why don't we have a TV like everyone else? I whined to my parents one night. I wanted to know what the Spongebob that everyone at school talked about was. You know what happens when kids watch TV? They get addicted to it, my dad promptly replied. He was a psychiatrist, so I had to take his word for it. When there's a will, though, there's a way. And my siblings and I subsequently became addicted to books instead. Now, as I understand it, parents usually love it when their kids read. Not my parents, who thought Golperbui were just as bad as television. Why can't you read books about history or science, they'd ask. Why does it have to be these made-up stories? What my parents didn't understand is that these made-up stories were educational. From the confines of our cramped Lower East Side apartment, where our only outings were to school, the library, or family friends' apartments, Books were the sheltered first-generation kids' only guide to how to be a normal American. 
Through books, I learned things that my Bengali immigrant parents couldn't teach me. I learned that most American kids hated vegetables. That outside of New York City's dirty streets, kids could play outside without their parents' supervision. That they could fall into streams, explore caves, and hike through forests. That in most schools, kids don't call their teacher by their first name. That child detective was a viable career option. That I really wanted to live in a boxcar too. Or a little house on the prairie. I refused to let a moment pass without devouring these precious pieces of information. To be fair to my parents, my siblings and I probably didn't have healthy reading habits. We would sneak books into the bathroom and read on the toilet for an hour before starting a shower. We would read while walking home from school. We would read at the dinner table, holding one side of the book down with the edges of our plates. When that wasn't enough, my sister and I decided we would start reading at night when our lights were off and we were supposed to be sleeping. The only problem was the lack of light, but that couldn't stop us. My sister and I slept in the living room, with our bed right by the serving hatch between the kitchen and the living room. My parents had nailed a board up to cover the serving hatch. We found a crack in that board and would shove a plastic toy, which we'd bought for 50 cents from the vending machine at the laundromat across the street, into the crack every night to prop it open. The crack would let in a small beam of light from the kitchen, just enough to get a few pages of delicious reading in. When Amu was done washing the dishes for the night and switched the kitchen light off, we knew story time was up. Eventually, my mom had enough, and declared a moratorium on our weekly after-school trips to the public library next to our school. No more books for two weeks. This was the absolute worst. Not only could I not check out the next A to Z mysteries from the library, but I'd already finished all the books in my second grade classroom. Luckily, my teacher Maisie was absent that very week, and my classmates and I were sent to another second grade teacher, Stacy's class. Stacy's classroom was a new and wonderful world of unexplored books. Best of all, she had practically all of the Beezes and Ramona books, and others I hadn't even heard of. All day, I waited anxiously until my favorite class period, independent reading. Independent reading time was the time of day where we could read any book of our choice from the class library. We were usually allowed to pick out a few books every week to put in our Ziploc book baggies and take home. I'd already read all the books in my baggie. Choose one book, and Maisie's class, you can read any book you want, but please put them back once you're done, Stacy announced. That was like asking a chocolate addict to bite off the tip of a Hershey's kiss and leave the rest. I guess Stacy wasn't keeping very close watch, because it was easy enough to snag a book, slip it into my baggie, and sneak it home. Where'd you get this book? Maisie repeated. She gave me an encouraging smile. Maisie wasn't funny like my kindergarten teacher, Andy, and she didn't tell us crazy stories about her boyfriends like my first grade teacher, Renee, did. But she was kind. I didn't want her to know that I'd been stealing books from the other second grade teachers. But more importantly, I only had a few chapters left of the book. I couldn't return it. Not yet. I looked back at her. It's mine, I lied. Maisie's smile didn't waver. She opened the book and pointed to the word on the first page. 
There it was in black sharpie. S T A C E Y. Stacy. After I'd done it once, I realized how easy it was. It was so easy to shove Stacy's The Mouse and the Motorcycle book underneath my shirt at the end of independent reading time, awkwardly walk over to the cubby, and slip the book into my backpack. It was a scene straight out of a Beverly Cleary book. Soon, Stacy wasn't the only teacher I'd stolen from. On Wednesday, Maisie was still absent, and I was sent to yet another second grade class. So, I pilfered a few choice selections from that classroom as well. My scheme got a bit more elaborate that day, though, since my classmates and I had left our backpacks in our original classroom, and I had nothing to hide my contraband in. At the end of independent reading time, I whispered hoarsely to Jennifer, the teacher, I can't breathe. I think I'm having an asthma attack. And hoped to God she wouldn't notice the bulge underneath my dress. To my relief, Jennifer was alarmed and sent me to the nurse's office. To my dismay, she sent along my friend Julia to make sure I didn't die during the journey. Luckily, Julia didn't question me when I said that we needed to make a stop at my cubby in Maisie's classroom. She was busy filling the empty hallway with chatter while twirling her curly hair between her fingers. I nodded along as I unloaded the books into my backpack, a small price to pay in exchange for her compliance. At the nurse's office, I tried to breathe shallowly under the nurse's stethoscope, thinking that this would convince her that I couldn't breathe. No wheezing, she announced cheerily, and I realized that complete silence had only helped assure her that nothing was wrong with my lungs. Instead of sending me home sick to enjoy my newfound loot, the nurse sent me back to Jennifer's class. To Julia, this had been an adventure. She'd been charged with a life-or-death situation and got a few minutes of freedom from the classroom to boot. But unbeknownst to her, I'd made Julia an accomplice in my crime. In the excitement, she never mentioned our detour to an adult. And so... Like my great predecessors in crime, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Junie B. Jones, and Ramona Quimby, I had escaped from my antics unscathed. Until now, that is. Maisie was back at school this week, and she'd seen books in my baggie that she knew didn't come from her classroom. And now, for the first time, I was one of those kids. I was one of those kids that the teacher took to the hallway to have a talk with. I ran my tongue over my teeth, wondering if any of them would choose that moment to pop loose and rescue me from Maisie's questioning. Probably not. I'd lost most of my teeth already. Besides, the nurse was probably sick of me. Did you take this book home from Stacy's class? she asked. There was no avoiding it. I... I have a friend called Stacy, I declared. She gave me this book. Hmm, Maisie thought out loud. Not unkindly. Does your mom know your friend Stacy? How about if I ask your mom about her today? Play it off, my brain instructed. Don't react. But instead the words, My mom doesn't know her, I met Stacy at the park, came tumbling out of my mouth at record speed. The lies echoed off of the black and brown tiled hallway and settled onto my soul. My mom would be so ashamed to know that her daughter was not only an undisciplined reader, but also a book thief. Not just a book thief, but also a bold-faced liar. Maisie's smile remained painted across her face, but was that pity in her eyes? 
She looked at me sadly and said, Okay, Nabiha, go back inside. Phew, my brain sighed in relief without consulting my gut, which twisted in anxiety and disgust. Thank you, Allah, rattled through my mind, quickly followed by, I'm so sorry. Reading books may not be haram, but lying certainly is. I tried not to let my knees collapse under me as I walked back into the classroom. All I could do was hope that Maisie wouldn't ask Ammu about Stacy, because I wasn't sure I could handle lying to my mom too. Maisie never did ask my mom about my new best friend, and after a few fra after-school lineups, I started breathing easier. Maybe a little too easy, because sometimes my book baggie was fatter than it should have been. If you're wondering, though, I did return all those books back to my elementary school, and 15 years later, I no longer steal books. But I do owe $126.25 in late fees to the Brooklyn Public Library. Look, I'm working on it. Oh my gosh, I love that ending. Yeah, like, definitely. It yeah. is so on par with like the voice and the tone established throughout the story. Mm -hmm. And like, I love how <laughs> unapologetic um, you are <laughs> in the story. Um, there's this one scene where you lie to Maisie and acknowledge that you didn't want her to know you've been stealing, but that more importantly, you only had a few chapters left in the book. So that word choice is very telling in terms of what took precedence over anything else. It was clear that you had concerns about what you were doing, but I wonder how much that was dulled in comparison to the moments of soaking in those pages. Like, did it ever feel ridiculous or was it guilt-inducing that you had to go to such great lengths to indulge in your guilty pleasure from, you know, trying to achieve the perfect handoff? Um, from taking the book from under your shirt and into your book bag to faking asthma attacks? Or was it just one of those things where it felt natural to act so strategically so as long as you constantly got to indulge in this pleasure? Wow, that's, um, I think that's a really interesting question because I think in one sense it did feel natural. And that's just because of how much I enjoyed reading and like what that escape did for me. Mm -hmm. But it was definitely... I think I was like weighing options because I felt a lot of guilt doing things like this. And right. even before writing this piece, I felt this was a memory that I really didn't want to think about. It was also something that I didn't want to write about. But while I was writing it and in the process of writing about me stealing books, I realized that it was actually kind of maybe a little funny <laughs> and not like the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I definitely did feel really guilty about it. But it's just that reading was such a passion of mine. And mm -hmm. um it was also just something that I felt was my own because, you know, we weren't allowed to watch TV and there were just also other differences, I guess, between my life and like the lives of what I thought of as normal Americans. So to me, reading was not just an escape, but it was really something that um, my siblings and I indulged in whenever we could. And it was something that we shared um, in absence of all of those other things. Yeah, and you were learning, you were trying to learn a culture that you didn't 100% yeah. understand or feel like you fit into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on that note, this story is really endearing as you reflect on it in hindsight. And there is also a part in there about the role of books as educational and showing you what American culture was like outside of your Bengali home and urban environment of New York City. 
This is a part of growing up in an immigrant family in America, the learning process of becoming American. Can you talk a little bit about how you've grown into these parts of your identity since the snippet we see in your story? Yeah, another great question. Um, I think my love of reading hasn't gone away at all, and I still view books as really formative to my childhood and also to who I am now. You know, I, I continue to read and learn um, both from fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I think a major thing that's changed for me is that, you know, back then as a child when I used to read these books, I kind of saw it as proof of how weird my household was <laughs> or like, you know, why are we like this or like, why can't we just fit in? Why don't why doesn't our life look like this? And part of that wasn't just being an, an immigrant, but also living in New York. I think it's a very specific like kind of childhood where, you know, you're not experiencing um, all of the things that may be living in a more rural or suburban um, neighborhood might be like. Um, so I think a major difference is that I don't feel, I no longer feel like I have to subscribe to Um, these notions of being American or even that being American is like the ideal way to be. Um, Part of that has to do with, you know, just growing up and gaining more of an appreciation for my parents, my culture, um, my family back home and all of that, all of what that has to offer, my religion as well. It was always important to me growing up, but, you know, I've started to, I think maybe I felt a little bit of shame or felt just uncomfortable um, really owning that when I was younger, but now, you know, it's enriched my life so much and it's a major part of my identity and I have no problem owning that. Um, But another part of that is also political. Mm. You know, as I've gotten older and realized that this country (laughs) um, really is a country built on settler colonial violence um, and a lot of me doesn't feel like, I just don't think it's an identity that is something to be proud of, to be honest. Um, and insofar as I do identify as American, it's just to take accountability for the violence that is being per- perpetrated in my name. And I, if someone asked me to identify myself, I wouldn't identify myself as American, um, mm-hmm. to be clear. So, yeah, you know, my value for books and like learning in general, learning about other cultures, it wasn't just American, you know, children that I read about or read about now that remains but I think I've grown a lot more secure in um in the value of being different and owning that right because that is so especially as you were saying you you said that just so beautifully and even when you're talking specifically about being from New York and that being kind of different from you know, the people that you were reading about in these books, like in the question that Alishba asked, like even the word becoming American was in quotes because it's like, what does that even mean? Because Mm -hmm. being in New York, it's like Americanness is all of these things intertwined. So it is being also Bengali. It is also being like um, from El Salvador, like where I'm from. And it's all of those pieces that, like we it, there's just like a more it, it's almost like I don't want to say less likely to be othered but it totally makes sense that reading these books you'd be like oh so that is what this country is and I mm-hmm. am different from this country mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I love that you brought that up because actually in hindsight, I did realize that a lot of the differences between me and what I was reading about is a lot of it is due to actually being from New York and not just being immigrant because being an immigrant is the most New York thing ever. Like mm-hmm. there are so many families in New York that are like mine, so many kids that, you know, are like me. And even in, in class and like when I've had other people reading this story, they've told me that um, they relate to it so much, right? So I think a lot of me was just <laughs> reading about, you know, kids running through the woods and <laughs> playing in streams <laughs> and learning how to swim by being thrown into the lake. And I was like, wow, oh, I want that. But <laughs> it, it was like, no, you don't. <laughs> you grew up like that? I grew up in California, so we definitely had like the suburban lifestyle <laughs> that was very typical. Sometimes I wish I had like kind of like a unique childhood, just a little bit, you know, because I feel like I had like such an average childhood, you know, like and even though like that's good in itself, you know, sometimes you just, you know, want a little bit more adventure, you know, yeah, average. <laughs> But sometimes I too wish I grew up on the little house on the prairie. Like, <laughs> that's, that's also what's like kind of fun about it is like, I know that some of these things are like, I don't know, they were othering to me. Because I, when you were t- talking about all the different books that you were reading, I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I love those books too. Mm-hmm. And now I kind of look at them and I'm like, oh, it's like being transported to another world. And I think as a kid, you, you kind of think that world is like the best world mm-hmm. and that your current world can't it like doesn't even compare to the little house on the prairie <laughs> <laughs> which is such a funny like sentence but um but and you definitely you know grow up to appreciate it more as an adult but I just I, I don't know it's it's definitely funny to to think back on on the life that like as a kid you wanted so bad you know <laughs> Yeah, well, unfortunately, too, at the end of it, a teacher brings the escapade kind of crashing down to some extent. And um, do you feel like um, how the teacher responded to that situation really informed your perspective on the learning process as a whole or culturally acclimating? And Mm. do you feel like you still um, kind of kept that teacher in your mind to some extent as you've continued to study, can you continue to read? This is funny to me because I definitely did keep that teacher in mind, but it was not in a good way. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh. Uh-oh. So when Professor Madraza read this piece um, and she was commenting on it, she was like, I love this teacher. She, Maisie is amazing. And I was kind of struck by that. I was like, you know what? She was because for the longest time, I really did not like Maisie after that. I couldn't mm-hmm. look her in, that, in the face. I did not like being in her class. Um, once in third grade, she walked into my classroom just to talk to my third grade teacher. And I was just like, why is she here? (laughs) Since then, I didn't really revisit her position in my, you know, in my mind because I just avoided thinking, thinking about this altogether. I was so embarrassed about, you know, being a little book thief. I was like, what What was wrong with me? Parents raised me better than that. Um, (laughs) but after hearing Professor Madraza talk about her, I was like, wait, she actually handled that really, really well. And it was really nice of her to not get me in trouble for something yeah. um, like that. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> I definitely appreciate her now. <laughs> I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. So, 
No, I mean, and I'm sure she wasn't perfect, but I, I, I found myself as the story was barreling forward. I was like, oh no, this teacher's going to embarrass her. She's going to publicly humiliate her. She's going to call her mother. That's what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I was glad that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. So with all of that said, is there anything that you would like your readers to take away from this story? What I would like readers to take away from the story, even if they aren't as voracious of a reader as I am, is to never discount where learning can come from. Mm-hmm. And I know that, um, like you would say, yeah, reading books, of course, that's educational. But to my parents, reading, you know, fictional books, and I think in Bengali culture in general, like when I speak to my family back home, this is how they see it. Um, they see it as a waste of time or they see it as like, the equivalent of watching TV, which can also be educational. I know a lot of people, um, you know, I, I know kids these days, they watch like YouTube videos all the time and people complain <laughs> about that. And yeah, maybe that's an issue. But, you know, I have, I know little kids who are so, so intelligent. They know so much because of that. So it's not just in terms of, you know, absorbing information like reading books or watching TV um, can be, but whatever you do in life, I think can be really formative and just don't discount the importance of those experiences um, because I can confidently say looking back that if I really wasn't able to read those books, I would have been such a different person. I think my worldview would be so different. Um, my interests, I just finished writing my senior capstone. Like I think that would have been in a completely different direction. Thank you. So yeah, I just think that wherever you can take learning from is really important that that can look really different for different people. So that's what I would like readers to take away. Yeah. That was very well said and very, very well formulated. Uh, Thank you so, so much for giving us the story, for reading the story for us, for allowing us to experience this and go on this journey with you. It was such a blast. Thank you so much for having this interview with us as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's such an honor. Thank you so much. This story is by a new author to the podcast, Jelani Pogi. Born in New York City, but raised all around the country, Jelani Pogi is a junior at John Jay pursuing a bachelor's degree in forensic psychology. He moved back to New York towards the end of middle school and has been here ever since. He is a full-time student with a part-time job with hopes to graduate by the end of next year. While he isn't completely sure which route he will pursue in psychology, he is leaning towards becoming a therapist. Let's take a listen to Jelani's story entitled Bonnie and Clyde, read by Sam Stutoff. Of all the possible stores on Rockaway Parkway, why'd my grandma have to walk into this one? I'll wait outside, I tell her as she walks inside. I knew I shouldn't have agreed to come, but man, I didn't think it was going to be this store. I walk away from the front door, letting my eyes roam up and down the streets as I wait trying unsuccessfully to think of anything else. There they are, staring at me on the shelf, the same mechanical pencils that everyone in sixth grade has. I can't stop thinking about being able to push the lead tip into my arm like it's a needle. Then you just press down on the eraser, and all of a sudden the lead starts going back inside the pencil. But I can't have one. My younger cousin and I have been sent by my aunt to get the bare minimum for school year. And that means 
buying the cheapest box of number two pencils that come with like 20, the kind you have to sharpen with a knife the day before school. I hate those pencils. If only I could have a mechanical one. I can see it now. Our homeroom teacher tells us to copy down the do now list. I reach in my bag and then boom, there it is, my mechanical pencil. Everyone will see it and ask if they can use it when I'm done, but I'll tell them no. And watch as they all go back to using their normal pencils. But I know money isn't the best, especially since my aunt agreed to take me because my parents don't want to. My cousin doesn't even ask her own mom for stuff like this. Extras. So I know for sure I should. I look over at my cousin and I realize we both hate these normal old school pencils. We reach up, grab the mechanical ones just to have a look. They come with one case of lead to fill up the pencil. Then you have to buy the rest on your own. Refills. We grab the regular pencils, bland notebooks, put it all in our shopping basket. But then, I see she's still holding on to the mechanical ones. I know we can't buy those, so I try and tell her to put them back. She doesn't want to. I can see that as her eyes grow wide, looking at me, saying something with no words. Then I realize she's not looking at me at all, but at the backpack I bought. No, no way, we can't, I whisper to her. She grabs another box and tells me we can both have one. Stealing? I'm too scared to even think about doing it. I mean, stealing is one of those things I grew up hearing not to ever do. If we get caught, we could be in huge trouble. But, then again, no one sees us. We could have what we've been wanting for so long. I mean, we're only taking two packs. There's dozens up there. We look up and down the aisle and see no one's there, just a camera. Take off my backpack, turn my back towards the blinking. I motion for her to be quick as I pretend I'm grabbing something else off the shelf to body block her. What are you doing? My mind is practically anticipating a scream from some adult. She's going to pop out of nowhere like they always do. Is she done? This feels like forever. She slips the pencils in my bag and walks away to let me know she's done. <sighs> Put my bag on and walk towards the counter with a shopping basket. My heart is pounding in my chest as I wait online to get checked out for the box of pencils and notebooks. I don't know why we did this. Can they call the police on a kid? I mean, I've heard of Juvie, but that's for real bad things, right? I mean, it's just two pencils. Next, a bored cashier says. It's my turn to walk up. My head is starting to hurt as I put the shopping basket on the counter. Is that all? He asks. Does he know? Why else would he ask that? There's no way he could have seen us. I made sure to block her from sight. Yes, I say shakily. My heart is about to explode. I pay and walk out of the store. No cops outside. No screaming adults. We, we did it. Those pencils are ours. My cousin and I rejoice on our way back, and we just struck gold. 
That was the first time. Our first heist. It wasn't our last, though. My grandma's taking such a long time. Is everything all right in there? Maybe I should go in and see what's the hassle. Then again, maybe I'll just wait a little longer. <sighs> we have been on a run for nearly a month now, terrorizing the dollar stores of Rockaway Parkway. We didn't actually need anything else, but it got fun. Mechanical pencils here, cool eraser there, and the five-star notebooks. Oh, the five-star notebooks. Being able to have whatever we want for once feels great. It's fun to have the best pencils, pens, and notebooks at school. I feel like I've got it all. Everything I want is mine. Do have to hide some of our loot when we get home, though. One time we got caught with a really good ink pen we stole. We have to lie and say we found it at school. So we made an agreement to use our regular pencils and our composition notebooks at home. The good stuff, we'd save for school. We don't want any more questions from my aunt. Today, we're going in with no bags. It's like a test at school. We want to see just how good we are. Walk in the store, and I have my cousin ask for a plastic bag as I walk to the back. I open the bag. She gives it to me. Look at the shelves. Those texting gloves with the special fingertips look cool. Throw them in the bag. I go to walk out, separated from my cousin, just like we planned. Hey! I freeze in place. There's no way. I mean, we did it perfectly. Walking in separately, switching the bags between us without anyone seeing. Did he notice I walked in with nothing? I was sure I walked in while he was talking to another customer. The clerk behind the register tells me to hand over the bag. There they are. The gloves I tried to steal. He's saying something to me, but I can't hear him over the pounding in my chest. Is this it? Is it finally over? I mean, what am I going to tell my aunt? There's no way I can stay here. I think of what my aunt will say if she finds out. She isn't quick to hit, but for stealing and lying, I usually stay out of trouble because all I do is play video games and homework. But there was that one time I stuck the finger to our neighbor. I didn't really know what it meant, though. I got my games taken away for a week that time and I couldn't even leave the house. Can't imagine if I got caught stealing and lying. So, I make my decision. I won't get caught stealing and lying. I run outside and turn the corner, not stopping for nearly two or three blocks. I wait for my cousin. We walk home in complete silence. The fear of police showing up at our house crushes both of us. We hope that we get let off and promise each other to never do it again. panic remains for days, maybe even weeks. But the cops never do show up, and no one ever finds out what we did or that we got caught doing it. But now, as a 13-year-old standing outside the only store I ever got caught in, I'm wondering what luck I have. I want to go in and see if she needs help. What if they have one of those photos of me inside the store from the cameras like other stores? What if my grandma already saw the photo and recognized me? What if she's crying inside and shocked that her little boy is a thief and a liar? I frown and get ready to go inside and face my punishment. But the door opens. There she is. My grandma comes out with her loaf cake and some just soap. Sorry it took so long. The line in there was long, she says. We head home, and a wave of relief passes over me. 
as we get inside. She still hasn't mentioned that I stole something. I'm not sure how, but it seems luck was on our side for once. Because nearly a decade later, the secret lives on. My cousin and I laugh about it, looking back now. But that was the last time I'll ever steal something. And still, sometimes it's hard not to laugh about. We never did go back inside that store. We also agreed to bury that secret alive. Probably best if no one ever finds out. <laughs> ah! That line so got me so good the first time because I knew this was going to be recorded. So hearing yeah. this shouldn't be said anywhere and <laughs> knowing it's going to be recorded for so many, that gets me so good. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sharing this piece with us. No problem, no problem at all. Yeah, Thanks for had, reading. I had such a good ride with it. It was so interesting. It was so yeah. engaging. Like, it was very well written. Yeah. So, let's get straight into the questions for you. All right. At one point, after you and your cousin got used to stealing, you say you feel like you've gotten all. To quote yourself, everything I want is mine. Was there a plan to start small by taking school supplies and then eventually escalating? Do you think you would have moved on to other things you desired beyond the scope of school supplies had you not been caught getting the gloves? You know, I don't think so. At the time, honestly, all I really wanted was, like, cool school supplies and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, me and my cousin, yeah, we had enough, like, fun together at, like, our house. So I didn't really need, like, extra toys. I didn't really want, like, toys or, like, games or anything. We pretty much had that. I just, yeah, we were just like invested into those school supplies. We really wanted those pencils. Yeah, those mechanical pencils were yeah. the, the real deal. Cool. Yeah, the five-star cool. notebook. That's my favorite some, line is yeah. the five-star notebook. Yeah, I was reading some of that and I was like, man, those are our school days too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I don't think it is ever going to go beyond that scope, hopefully. That, that made me wonder because you had said at one point in the story, um, but I know money isn't the best. And I know this is something that is unfortunately extremely relatable, wishing for things, but still being aware of the financial circumstances. So out of all things to desire or fixate on, um, especially at a young age like that, what was it about school supplies? Because there were so many lines that just kind of like relayed how much they appeal to you and it's just like you know there could have been games there could have been clothes there could have been collectibles so like what did having high quality school supplies say about the kids at your school right, right. You? um well I think like as a kid you know you spend like what five days of the week mm -hmm. like nine hours of each five days in school so like you're just mm -hmm. around school like all the time basically as a kid i didn't really care too much about like dressing up and stuff so that was just like never like I, I wasn't like a big like sneakerhead or anything like that so I, I didn't really care about like shoes and stuff like that so I'm in school all the time basically all I could possibly want is like you know the best the best supplies I guess um as far as games I'm not too sure I, I honestly I didn't really have like um at the time, I wasn't into like online gaming, so I didn't really have any like online friends that I would need to like buy games for. It was mm -hmm. just yeah. So like at the time, literally, it was just like school supplies is like the only thing that I really like the cool school supplies is the only thing I really wanted. But did a lot of other kids at school have them? 
Um, well, like the the cool kids uh, kind of had them, <laughs> yeah. Like, um, yeah, yeah. A lot of kids had the the mechanical pencils. And I just, yeah, that was one big big thing back then. The mm. mechanical pencils. Yeah, I like remember that so specifically. Like when I first sat down to read the story, I was like, whoa, there's like it it wasn't just something that was centralized to my school as like this kind of like yeah for sure. like almost like a social currency yeah basically (laughs) it it was just so interesting to read specifically five star because yeah that was something that to me was it when I first got my little job when I was like 14 and I had my own like few dollars for a chance I would be like mom we gotta go to Staples I gotta go get (laughs) the five star binder because it's like big and pretty and has all these compartments and you know that was just it, it, it was it was nostalgic to read the story and of course to kind of be in your headspace as you talked about what stealing like meant for you as well. yeah it's it's funny actually now because I um I actually work at Staples now I've been working there for like the past like three years <laughs> ultimate yeah. want to get me a binder <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've been working there since like the end of high school that's what so you now. call coming around full circle I guess <laughs> yeah yeah that yeah, is so I mean, funny. <laughs> it's probably probably for the best that you uh, decided to take a break from your criminal career. Then, I yeah, <laughs> the ultimate temptation. Um, yeah, yeah. In the in the story, you, you reflect on that time period pretty um, somewhat fondly, but also like as a there's a lot of conflict and anxiety inherent to how you relate the story. Um, notably, saying like you never went back into that store. Yeah, agreeing to keep that secret. Um, which is a bit ironic now that the story's out there to some extent. But as we see pieces of your inner turmoil with stealing throughout the story, like when you first agree to take the mechanical pencils and are like unconsciously waiting for an adult to tell on you and get caught. Um, Was there something about stealing in particular that worried you like this, even to this day as an adult? Like how does this story still kind of come back into play in your life? Um, well, I don't steal anymore. That's one thing. Um, Happy to hear. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably like, it kind of, it scared me. Like, you know, you like, I walked in there and um, like the time that I got caught and he like yelled at me. He's like, like, yo, like he knew what I was doing. And like, it, it just, it scared me. Like, I was like, oh man, this, this is about to be really bad. I, I thought it was going to go down from there luckily it didn't um but yeah like i i was like yeah okay i'm i'm done that's it for me i am i'll buy everything i'll, I'll get a job if i have to scared straight <laughs> yeah <laughs> scared straight before having to go on the show that was so yeah so what would you like your listeners to take away from the story uh if anything <laughs> yeah it, i mean it was just supposed to be like you know like a lighthearted story mm-hmm. a, little, a little funny i mean yeah. obviously you know don't steal try not to break the law it's probably better <laughs> yeah probably, probably better if you don't um if you are stealing one day you will get caught That's, uh, <laughs> everybody has that day that one day you mm-hmm. will get caught but um yeah i mean it's just supposed to be like a little story to enjoy laugh at me like you know uh-huh. I laugh at it so it's fine you can laugh yeah. at it um 
but yeah that's pretty much it 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 really is like so much of that it's so like sweet to see you like really wrestle with yourself like you it seems like one of those like uh like um I, I forget how you call it but it's like it's like your first like moral dilemma it feels like of like oh my god yeah. do I do this do I not and then you know getting wrapped into it it, it was just really like endearing to see to see this kind of yeah. story so thank mm -hmm. you so much for bringing it to us I think it's really nice to see the other perspective we have this like stereotype of like the middle school boys who steal and we always just like think they're bad like like boys are bad and you know and this was a bad thing to do right you know but we understand why you did it and we're like mm -hmm. oh yeah and then it got out of control but yeah yeah <laughs> we root for you we root for you throughout and then in the middle there's someone we're like eh, but <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we stayed for the journey where it gets pat yeah where it's like you don't need any more mechanical pencils now now you just now you're just taking the take yeah <laughs> Sure. Thank you so, so much for sharing this piece. We had such a blast with it. And thank you so much for coming in for this interview with us. No problem. It was fun. I was a little scared, not going to lie. I've <laughs> never been in Uber before, but yeah, it was fun. Thank you. That concludes our eighth episode of the fifth season, Idle Hands. We are all so excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. Very special thank you to everyone listening in. We hope to see you soon and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> good night.